Our scripture reading for today is from Psalm 97. If you have a black Bible with you from over here on the cart, that is on page 499 and it's on page 500. If you do not have a Bible, please go get one and take one. That is our gift to you. You can have that Bible. Psalm 97, it's about in the middle of the Bible, the Psalms are. The big numbers are the chapter numbers, the little numbers are the verse numbers. Hear the word of the Lord, Psalm 97. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. As Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous, righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. God, though we have read this with our minds, though I've read this with my lips, yet we need you now to come into our hearts and illuminate, illuminate to open, to unpack, to show, to guide us to the center of your will and heart. We find it here. We find you here in this psalm, speaking your truth. Without you, we are lost, but with you, we are found and we see and we see and we see. Help us to do that now by the work of the Spirit, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to your glory. Amen. So today we end our series on the Psalms. It's our summer Psalms. We close it out today. The Psalms, if you don't know, are always orienting, sometimes reorienting. They are orienting us. I kind of like to, I like to think of them as those giant satellite dishes out in the desert that they use to try to talk to aliens or communicate with other satellites in in outer space. They are like satellites in the sense that they They move, they move us, sometimes very slowly, they orient us into the right positions to receive, to transmit well. The Psalms orient us to God so that we may see Him and know Him, respond to Him. So this series of psalms, I haven't really said this out loud, but this series of psalms have been mainly about one thing. We're in a section that is pointing to one thing, and that is this truth that God is the king, that God is on the throne over all the universe. And this psalm highlights it so perfectly, so clearly, God reigns, the Lord reigns, not just over the universe, but you. Every single person here, 
every soul, God reigns over you. And he must. He must. So let's walk through this psalm. Psalm 97, three points this morning. One, respond to his reign. Two, submit to his reign. And three, rest in his reign. Respond, submit, and rest in his reign. Okay, one, respond to his reign. What is this text asking? If, it was to, if you were to say that this text is asking a question, what is it asking? It's asking this question. Who is the king? Who is the king of not just the United States or the world or the universe, but every person, everything in the galaxy, over the heavens even? Who is the king? Who is on the throne? Good question. Now, they actually asked that question, though maybe not in exactly the same way. They asked the question on Family Feud a couple of years ago. Steve Harvey asked a bunch of people, who is the king? And they surveyed some people, and two people said, two, two surveyed people said, Burger King. Three people said, this is a little better, Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Jr. That's good. Seven people said, God or Jesus? 81 people surveyed said, who was the king? Elvis. Elvis Presley, the king. Now I hope, I don't, I don't, I hope that they weren't actually thinking about the question, who was the king of the universe? But that is the question that we get to ask this morning. And not just generally, not just amorphously. We get to ask it for ourselves personally. Who is our king? Who is my king? Who reigns over my life? To whom do I offer my allegiance and obedience? Now, this psalmist has no doubt who the king is. Look look right there in verse 1. It is the Lord, 97.1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Now, that is about as definitive as it gets. He is the Lord. He is the Lord who reigns. Now why? How can He be the one? Is it no other God? Is it no other person? No, it is the Lord. And I see three things here that make Him Lord, make Him reign. First, He is all-powerful. All-powerful. Theologians use the word omnipotent. All-powerful. Look at verse 2. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. Here's another big theological word. Theophany. Theophany is the, is the, is the way to describe any time God makes himself known physically on the earth, in the universe. It is the physical manifestation of of God. Now, I'm sure the psalmist has in mind Moses here. Moses and the people of God, as they're coming out of Egypt, God came down to them in a big cloud, a huge, furious cloud. Think of a tornado, like a class five tornado, the biggest one you can think of, but filled with lightning and smoke and fire and heat. The physical manifestation of God, but it only revealed a fraction of a fraction of his real power. Can you imagine the people in Hurricane Harvey watching it come down on them? Terrifying. The darkness, the rain, the thunder, the clouds. A fraction of a fraction of the power 
of God. And so it is not surprising, is it, that the psalmist would say, there's no one that can stand in God's way. There is no one who can overtake the power of God. All his adversaries fall before him. His power is unlimited. His strength is unconstrained. And so it says in verse 4, what does it say there? His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. And then I love this verse. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. I do not think that that's saying this is the passage of time. Now, we know that mountains erode over time. Given a million, billion, trillion years, even Mount Everest would become, I guess, like wax. I don't think that's what this is saying. I think that in the face, coming up against the power of God, the lightning, the heat of the Lord, he could melt mountains in seconds. There is no God so powerful. Not in our minds, not in reality. The Lord reigns because he is all powerful. The Lord reigns also because he is just and righteous. He is righteous and just. Verse 2 again. So clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Now it says this, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. That's fascinating. On the one hand, God is all-powerful. He's all-powerful. But then it adds this thing about his righteousness and his justice. Now is that truly necessary to be king? It is for God. It is for him to be the true reigning king over the universe. Now, some would say, no, we have seen plenty of countries and rulers wield only power, right? They've only been all powerful. The Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, first century Rome. But their power was just power. And their power, as you know, often upended and ruined justice. They did not build and restore the justice of their, of their peoples, their societies. Power, we know, by itself destroys. But when power is wielded by perfect justice and righteousness, it builds. And so God's reign is guided. His power is guided by His perfect, infinite justice and righteousness. He is holy. He is good. He does not come to the earth simply to conquer it. He comes to the earth ultimately to restore it. That is why He comes. To restore what has been broken and lost and overtaken by the forces of evil and darkness. Friends, God reigns in power, but even more so, He reigns in righteousness and justice. That is good news. Here's the last thing. God reigns by getting close. God reigns directly and intimately. He comes to us. The great philosopher Aristotle believed in God. He believed that there was a, a, a God. He was, would have called himself a theist or a deist. But he could not in his mind, in his philosopher's mind, see how an infinite and omnipotent creator could relate to those things that he created. He couldn't see how someone so large, so infinite could come down and have relationship with something so small and so finite. But what Aristotle did not know is that God is in his very essence and nature relational. God is in his essence and nature relational. And we know that because he exists not just as one God, but as 
three, the one and the three, the Trinity. You can't get your minds around it. Don't try. We just know it is. That for an eternity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have existed together in joy and harmony, loving and worshiping each other. So it should not be surprising that they would want to relate to their creatures, to have relationship with those they love. Now, I understand these verses are meant to evoke terror and fear. We are to stand humbly before the Lord. But we are also to stand, as we said in the previous point, and say thank you. We are to be grateful, for this is a God who does not just come with power, but with love. He relates to us with his love. I see that in verse 3. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. And that sounds kind of scary. It's a little sketchy. But understand that his fire is his holy love. It is his holy love. It is his love that seeks to destroy all those things that is destroying his creation. He, in other words, hates what is ruining the lives of his people. Now, we are the same way. If we love someone, we hate what kills them. We hate what is ruining their lives. E. E. Gifford put it this way. He says, the more you love your son, the more you hate in him the liar, the drunkard, the traitor. We are finite creatures trying to love other people, and yet we can do that. How much more does God love his people? How much more does he love the earth? And so when he comes, he comes to get close and to care for us with his holy fire. The Lord does not just reign out there. He reigns over each of us. He is the Lord. Now let's just take a second, take a deep breath, take stock, and let this psalm orient us. How do we respond to this God? How do you respond to this God who reigns? If he truly is the king over the universe, then he is the king over you. And so how do you respond to that? This almost tells us in verse 1, it's right at the top. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Let me tell you, you, you're part of the earth. You live in the earth. You are part of the coastlands. The Lord reigns over you, and so you must rejoice. You must rejoice. You respond to the Lord by rejoicing in Him. We should be glad. <laughs> now we need to think deeply about that. Gladness is not just a feeling. Rejoicing is not just something that you do externally when something good happens. If you really think about it, joy and experiencing joy is something that you must give yourself to completely. To rejoice in something is to give, your, is to give yourself to something. To rejoice fully is to give yourself over to something fully. So when I go to a nice restaurant and I order something on the menu and I take that first bite and it is astounding, it is amazing, I don't just exclaim that and then put my fork down and push the plate away. I don't do that. No, I keep on eating. I eat fully, sometimes too fully, and I rejoice in it. When I see my child across the room and they do something that reminds me of the tremendous gift they are to me, I rejoice, but I don't just sit there and admire from afar. I go to them. I 
pick them up and hug them and kiss them, often to their dismay, but I'd do it anyway. You cannot rejoice in something halfway. To truly rejoice in something, you must give your whole self to it. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Listen to this foundational truth. You must gladly give your whole self to God. You must gladly, rejoicingly give your whole self to the reigning God. You must submit not one part, not a little bit, all of you, your whole self to his word, to his commands, to his life. To rejoice in Him is to make Him king over everything that you do and think and say. To rejoice in Him is to make Him Lord over every part, every aspect of your life. It is glad and willful submission. That is what it means to rejoice in Him. To rejoice in the God who reigns. That is how I think we are to respond to Him. Well, let's keep going. Part, point two, submitting to the God who reigns. Submit to the God who reigns. How do you do that? How do, you, how do you rejoice in God? How do you submit to the God who reigns, to the God who is the king? I have to tell you, it is not easy. We are born doing the opposite. We are born not making him king, but making ourselves king. And so it is not easy to do it at all. So I love roller coasters, and I hate roller coasters. I love and I hate them. The speed, the G-forces, the drops, they are awesome. But to get to that point, if you've ever done it, is not something that's fun. To go through the line and wait and see the screaming roller coaster above you waiting in anxiousness and anticipation, that is not fun. The anticipation, the waiting, the terror of not knowing if you will puke or pass out or cry like a baby or die. I mean, that's what they're there for, right? To make you think you're going to die. We went to Universal, Universal Studios last March, and we did a bunch of rides, but I kept on avoiding the giant ones. Finally, I got my courage up at the end of the night, and I went on this ride called the Rip Rocket. The Rip Rocket. I hated it. At least the beginning. The waiting. The watching it. The seeing people freak out. The line, the moving, the slow moving, the anticipation, then especially when I sat down in that seat, I knew what I was submitting myself to, and the worker came over and she put this huge lap bar and pressed it down into my lap. Full submission. And that was it. The ride almost instantly drags you into a 90 degree uh, sitting position and you go straight up 167 feet. And then you go over the arch and straight down into pure bliss. One minute and 30 seconds of awesomeness. So here's my simple principle for roller coasters. To, the, to experience the joy of it, you have to submit to it. There's no other way. To submit your life to God is to submit to Him and His untold, unimaginable glories and joys. It is truly how you were meant to live, how we were meant to live. 
in service to the king, in service to his word and his will. But getting there, actually trusting God and submitting to him, that is not so easy. Look at what verse 6 says. It says that the heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. That's interesting. So heaven proclaims, and the people see. And so in other words, all the people, they see it. They see that God is glorified. But they are not worshiping. They're not rejoicing. They're not praising like heaven. They're doing something else. And then you see it in the next verse. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. All you gods. In other words, though everyone sees God's glory, though everyone knows deep down in their hearts that God reigns, many do not submit to him. They do not rejoice with heaven. They see it, but they stand far away. They do not submit to his rule and his reign. In a sense, it's a functional atheism. Yes, technically God is there in my life, but functionally he has no impact on me. He has no impact on what I do, what I say, what I think. I'm not to obey him. He's far off. I see him there, but he can stay over there. We struggle to give ourselves fully to the king. I'm going to tell you two reasons why. There's a million reasons, but I'm going to give you the two big ones. First, we are rebellious. We are rebellious. In other words, we believe that we, not he, must be master and Lord. We must be master and Lord. So verse 7 again says, All worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boasts and worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Now, what did we say idols were last week? What did we say idolatry was? To worship an idol is to worship those things, to give our lives to those things that we think will give us ultimate meaning. An idol is anything good that we make into a god. So in other words, an idol idol whispers to us, only if you have me will you be successful and happy. And so it, of course, is the opposite, the inverse of this. If you do not have me, you will suffer greatly. If you do not give your life to me, you will surely die. Now, what are our idols? They are numerous. Career, children, material possessions even love. Unless we get those things, we will surely die. That is what they are telling us, whispering to us. Now, will they be Lord and Master, or will God be Lord and Master? Jesus said it very clearly, you cannot serve two masters. Either God is God or something else is. Verse 7 says that he demands even the idols worship him. At some point, God demands what your idols demand. At some point, he's going to come into your life and he's going to say, is it me or is it them? And those things are always in conflict. And that is where we rebel. That is where we rebel. That is where we enter into rebellion. We say, God, I do not trust you. I don't trust you to meet my needs like my idols do. I do not trust that you will bring me ultimate meaning like my idols promise. You are not king they are. That is rebellion. That is how we are born. And it is always at the same time a choice. We are born doing this, and then we keep on doing it. 
submit either to God or to idols, submit to God or to those things that we think will bring us ultimate meaning. Why do people have sex before their marriage, even though God is very clear that you shouldn't do that? Because you believe that God, that you need that more than you need God. Why do you lie and cheat the little tiny ones to the big ones? Because you believe deep down that the most important thing is to maintain your status, your identity with your peers. You don't want anyone to think badly about you. Why do you work too many hours and sometimes neglect your family and your rest? Because you believe that only success and money will truly satisfy you. Voila, rebellion. Rebellion and idolatry is not just doing bad things. It is saying to God, I must maintain control and mastery over my life. I know what I need better than you do. Now here's the second connected thing, why we do not make God Lord in our lives, why we do not submit to him. And it's this, we do not trust him. That's obvious. We do not trust him. We distrust God's power and plan and love. Verse 10, I actually think is the linchpin of this passage. If you can get this and believe it and live into it, then you've got it. Verse 10, oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. This is the definitive statement to loving the Lord, to following him. You hate what he hates. You hate what is destroying the world and people. You hate what keeps people from, from allowing God to rule over them in love and power. You hate the sin that is destroying your heart. And we can only do that if we love him. That's what it says. If you love the Lord, then hate evil. We submit to him fully, finally, when we love him. But you will only love him if you find him loving. You will only submit to him if you find him trustworthy. You will only rejoice in him if you find him worthy. But we do not believe that. We do not trust that he cares for us, that he loves us. Why? Why is it? Why do we not trust him? Is it possible, let's just ask the question, is it possible that God actually is not trustworthy? That he doesn't deserve our trust? So if you're a parent, you know that you say to your kids often that you've got to earn my trust. You do this at work too. In my house, it comes up all the time. You have to earn my trust. So our daughter is learning how to cook. It's a beautiful thing. I love it for the most part. But she had to earn her way in my kitchen before she could start using the stove and the oven. You have to earn our trust. Now, this idea of trust is especially important if they lose our trust, if they disobey, if they don't follow through with a promise that they make, if they lie to us. You must earn my trust back, we say. We, as fallen creatures, apply that same thinking to God. God must earn our trust. What happens when we do that? What are we doing? We are making him our servant and we his king. We dethrone him and make him into our slave. And let me tell you, as long as God is your servant and not your king, he will fail you. He will never live up to your standards of trust and love. 
The reason that we do not trust God is not because he is not trustworthy. It is because we have rejected him as king. The Lord has proved himself over and over and over. He is perfect. He does not waver in keeping his promises. We know from his, his workings with the world that he is steadfast in his love. It is we who have turned the tables and made him to follow our ideas, our conceptions of what love should look like. We do not want a God who rules and reigns. We want a magician. C.S. Lewis said that as he was talking about how he used to approach God when his mother was dying. He said this, I had approached God or my idea of God without love, without awe, even without fear. He was in my mental picture of this miracle to appear neither as Savior nor as judge, but merely as a magician. And when he had done what was required of him, I suppose he would simply, well, go away. It never crossed my mind that the tremendous contract which I solicited should have any consequence beyond restoring the status quo. Is God your king or is God your servant? You will only understand and accept the love of God if you know Him and treat Him as Lord, as King. And friends, this love that we're talking about, it is true love. It is the true love of the father to the child. So you must approach Him, as Lewis says, with love and awe and fear. God is King. We are His servants. And when this is uncovered, we uncover his love, a love that we always need but often do not want. It is the love that provides what we need to flourish and to endure. And so this means that he will not always answer our prayers. He will not always keep us free from suffering. Ask the people in Texas today about that. But, he, but we can know that his love for us is always Perfect. It is always what we need. In order to uncover that and live into it and trust it and rejoice in it, you must submit to him. There is no other way. Verse 8 says, Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord, for you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. And then, verse 10, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. I love this passage because it is showing true life. He is not saying that the saints of the Lord are those who live luxurious, easy lives. Far from it. These people are under duress. But they know that in the end, God will preserve them. He will make them to persevere. He will deliver them. He is the king and he truly loves them. That is the God that you can, should, and must submit to. Last point this morning, rest in his reign. Rest in his reign. Psalm 97, 11 is so beautiful. Light is sown for the righteous, 
and joy for the upright in heart. Light, beauty, glory, majesty is sown for us. It is sown for his people. He is lovingly sowing the light into us so that it may sprout forth truth and holiness and goodness and joy. I actually think this is the answer to how we obey God, how we make him reigning ruler over our lives. This is where we get the internal spiritual power to let us submit, to finally live as we were intended to live. And we need it. We need his power. We need his grace. We are on our own too rebellious and distrustful. We need, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. Jesus did it for us. He did it for us so that we could do it now. It was Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry who faced up to the most extreme challenges to God's reign. The devil himself came to him, came upon him, and challenged his love for God, challenged his his mission, challenged God's love. But unlike Adam and Eve and unlike us, Jesus did not rebel. Unlike Adam and Eve and unlike us, Jesus never doubted for a second the love of his Father. He obeyed. He submitted. He obeyed in perfection. He obeyed even to the point that he would become our servant on the cross so that we could become servants to God. He laid his life down in joyful submission so that we could lay our lives down for God and others. Jesus calls you, not me. Jesus calls you. He calls you to be joined with him. He calls you to take his yoke upon you. Do you know that section in Matthew where he says, take my yoke upon you? The yoke was that thing that they would hang over to, uh, to cattle so that they could push or pull something into the field to harvest the field. The yoke, together with Jesus, he offers it to us. But unlike the yokes of our idols, which sap our strength, deepen our anxieties, and leave us unsatisfied, what does Jesus offer? Rest. Rest. True joy. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Before you leave today, in our time of communion together, you must ask him, what do you need to give over to the Lord? What part of your life have you been holding back? Look deeply within. By his power and his grace, look deeply into your life. What are you holding back from him? How do you need to obey him? Something small, maybe something monumental. Confess it with your mouth, but do not stop there. Repent with your body, with your decisions, with your time. Make a definitive step. Respond in mind, body, and soul to his call. Allow him, maybe finally, to reign over your life. This is an old Saxon poem that goes this way. Do it immediately. Do it with prayer. Do it reliantly. 
casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing his hand who placed it before thee with earnest command. Stayed on omnipotent, on his strength, safe beneath his wing. Leave all resultings. Do the next thing. Let's pray. God, we are sinners and we do not know how to submit. It is a constant struggle. Literally. We are literally being, we are being torn between two things, between our idols, between our self-worship, and between you. And we will not make it without your grace. I know there are some people in this room who have been struggling against their sin or against obedience for so long, and they are tired, they are weary. Oh, attend to them, Lord. There are some in this room who have kept you at a distance for so long, and they've been happy to do it. But today, finally, they are seeing your glory. They're seeing your glory. Turn it into rejoicing. And Lord, we as a church, this is our goal, to live in the center of your will, to live with you as king over all things, to obey you in all ways, to walk out of sin and in righteousness. Help us to do that. Hold us accountable. Use us to hold each other accountable. God, we are all being asked this morning, what do we need to give up to you? What do we need to submit? And so now as we head into our communion service, may we be reminded of your grace, that you did not hold any of yourself back from us, that you gave your full self on the cross for us. If that is true, and if you have been raised from the dead, there is nothing you cannot ask of us. I pray only that we would say yes. We ask this in Jesus' name.